Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pahn and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, we look at claustrophobic films, which hinge on one powerhouse performance. Steve's choice is Locke, in which construction foreman Tom Hardy tries to hold his crumbling life together through a series of phone calls while travelling on the M6. Locke will take you on an emotional journey involving love, loss, and whether concrete should be C5 or C6. Dan's pick is Buried, in which Ryan Reynolds awakes to find himself buried underground in a coffin in Iraq with only a phone, lighter, flashlight, penknife, and inquisitive snake for company. Will he make it out in time? Dan digs deep into this horror classic. We hope you enjoy our discussion of these one-man films. And as always, dear listener, beware of spoilers. Enjoy the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Highbrow Lowbrow. We have a very special episode for you this evening. The theme is one-man shows, in which one actor carries the entire film, ably supported by a voice cast. These are experimental films that broke the mould. And that seems an apt metaphor because concrete and dirt and mud uh, feature prominently in these films. I shall get started. My highbrow pick for this week's show is Locke, a 2013 film starring Tom Hardy as Ivan Locke. He's a construction foreman who is leaving a building site in Birmingham and he can turn left or right and he decides to turn towards London and drive towards London rather than go home to his wife and kids who are waiting for him because the footy's on TV that night and they've got a special evening planned. So Ivan Locke is a, a Welshman. He's a very hardworking chap. He's, he's, he's implied that he's self-made, very reliable personality who has worked his way to the top. He seems to have, have it all, marriage, house, great career, everything you usually want in life. As he's driving away from the construction site, we learn that the following morning, the construction site will be the site of the largest concrete pour in European history outside of military or nuclear installations. So they are making a massive building, and this should be the pinnacle of Ivan Locke's career because he's in charge of it all. However, he makes a series of phone calls in his car. He calls his boss, Gareth, and he he gets through to Gareth's wife and says he wants to talk to Gareth uh, about concrete. It's an odd expression. But concrete is a good metaphor for Ivan's life because he likes everything solid and in its place and precise and correct. But as we are to discover, he made a simple but single big mistake some time back, which is going to smash through the foundations of his life. Seven months earlier, he had a one night stand in Croydon with a female colleague and she's about to give birth to his baby prematurely. And because she has no friends or family, he feels obligated to travel to London and be present at the birth. So he explains this to Gareth, who's furious because he knows that the company's American backers in Chicago will absolutely hit the roof. So there's a lot of building metaphors as I'm describing this, I didn't realise. Anyway, I I shall carry on. He calls and confesses to his wife, Katrina, who who was at that point unaware that he'd cheated on her. She's inconsolable. He tries to justify and say it was a a moment of madness and it wasn't an affair. It was a one night stand. And he even makes slightly ungallant comments about the lady in question saying she's not exactly an oil painting and that it wasn't like pure lust or anything. He just felt sorry for her. But Katrina is inconsolable. He periodically has fleeting conversations with his two boys, which are heartrending because they're excited about the football match. 
they had a family evening planned and they want him home so he can enjoy it with them. But he can't come home because he's got this birth to attend to and he knows his relationship with the boys will never be the same again. He's trying to calm Bethan, who is the woman about to give birth, and she is somewhat hysterical by nature. He's trying desperately to calm her. And she appears to be in love with Ivan, but he is, is almost like a blank slate. He, he refuses to say he loves her back, although he, he, he is polite and chivalrous and, and tries to soothe her, but he's incapable really of telling a lie. Therefore, it's against his moral code to say, I love you back, because that would be a lie in his eyes and he can't have that. Now, the best conversations he has on the phone for my money are with his inexperienced colleague, Donal. He leaves Donal in charge of the concrete pour because even though he's been sacked by Gareth, Ivan doesn't want to let go of this job. It's his masterpiece, you might say. But Donal's horrified by this because he doesn't have the experience. He has a drinking problem and Ivan needs to talk through the entire thing on the phone. And to make matters worse, Ivan's accidentally put his big file with all the details that's needed for the poor in his car when he should have left it in his office. So he has to explain these things down the phone and they have to work through a number of problems. Whenever you're working on a big project, there's always unexpected problems that pop up that you have to respond to quickly. These conversations are really good. And surprisingly, all of the dialogue about concrete is riveting. The difference between C5 and C6 concrete uh, was, was really interesting. And that leads to kind of one of the funniest moments when the, the concrete they're supposed to be getting is C6. But Donald says to Ivan, look, if, if it's OK, would, would it be just a little bit OK if there was just a little bit of C5? And Ivan's like, Donald, what does it say in the file? C6. What does it say in my office? What does it say everywhere on site? C6. He's like, well, then it will be C6. You know, he's very, very precise. But there's also other talk about the building industry, which is also fascinating. There's references to the lads making easy money on Crossrail, which is, of course, now open. But also when they're short-staffed and when some of the equipment isn't working, Ivan says to Donald, right, you need to go to this street. You'll, you'll find these uh, poles led by this guy called Stefan. They're working on, on this road and they'll give you the, the hardest day's work you've ever seen. Just give them 500 quid each, you know, out of discretionary funds. All, all of the talk about concrete and the building trade is, is surprisingly fascinating. So production-wise, this film was shot over six nights with Tom Hardy, who plays Locke, sat in a BMW X5, which, which is Locke's car, and it was pulled along the M6 by a flatbed truck. The supporting cast, the voice cast, who we never see, are all excellent. And they were located in a conference room of a hotel during a night shoot, and they would phone Hardy in his car. And this creates a tremendous realism, uh, as usually with telephone scenes in the movies, that just one person is shot in, in that particular set, and one person is shot in a different house, and it's done on different days. And rather than the two characters speaking to each other, which is what it looks like for the film, it, they're, they're probably just speaking to an assistant off, off camera. And you don't get the realism and the tension of, of phone calls. And you do get that tension in this film. It captures the dynamic of phone calls, which are, are always kind of tense and unusual because it's very different talking to someone when you can't see them reacting to your words and you've got to go entirely by their voice and by their intonation. Hardy plays Locke with a Welsh accent and he wanted Locke to be Welsh because the phone calls were so tense. He thought 
it would be nice for Locke to have a soothing accent to offset that tension. And after experimenting with a number of regional accents, it was decided that Welsh was the most calming of all the British Isles. Unlike a lot of the characters Hardy has played in, you know, action films or, or films like Bronson, Locke wasn't designed to have a lot of demons haunting him. He's designed to be exactly who he appears to be, a kind of very straight arrow type of character. Although he did have an abusive father or an absentee father, or he had some sort of negative relationship with his father, Ivan Locke. And he spends time talking to this imaginary father who sat on the back seat of the car, justifying his actions and saying he will take responsibilities for his mistakes in a way that his father never did. So the cinematography was by Harris Zamabalukas, who's a Greek Cypriot cinematographer. And it's an absolutely beautiful nocturnal film. It's wonderful to look at. Zambalukas said that he envisaged Locke's car as a kind of spaceship and the lights of the other cars to look like passing stars. And honestly, I mean, the M6 has never looked so good. You know, <laughs> Britain at night has never looked so good. It's a wonderful film to look at. It was written and directed by Stephen Knight, who is a very prolific screenwriter and is also one of the creators of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. So imagine he's got a few bob. It was his second film as a director. The first was Hummingbird, which I haven't seen, but it stars Jason Statham. And as we were talking on a different show, what, what would you call Jason Statham's Hamlet? I believe Hummingbird is considered one of Jason Statham's deeper films. So... I may have to track that one down, especially after liking Locke so much. And it is a really good film. It's really well written. The performance by Tom Hardy is, is superb. It, it was good of him to do a low-budget independent film for which he would have taken a massive pay cut. Not only because he would have taken a pay cut, because getting a star to do a film like this, which distributors might balk at because they're like, oh, it's all set in a car and it's, you know, it's, it's not a thriller, it's not an action film. It's just a dialogue film. But once you get Hardy on board, you get the financing, you get the distribution. In addition to Hardy's great performance, the, the voice cast is wonderful. There's probably about a dozen different voices we hear. I'll just go through the, the main ones. So the main voices we hear are Olivia Coleman as Bethan, the woman who's about to give birth. Ruth Wilson as Katrina, Locke's estranged wife. Andrew Scott as Donal, his friend who's given this awfully big responsibility. Ben Daniels as his boss, Gareth. Tom Holland and Bill, Bill Milner, who were child actors at the time, as Sean and Eddie, his, his sons. And other actors as well. There's Sister Margaret at the hospital who wants to speak to Locke and says, oh, are you the partner? He's like, no, I'm the father. He's very precise. And there's also a policeman he needs to speak to to get the police rights to close certain streets, to get the lorries through and, and various other things. It's a fantastic film of wonderful dialogue and wonderful acting. It did quite well. For, so for a budget of $2 million, it brought in $5.1 million at the box office. Really, you need to double your box office take before you really break even because there are hidden costs like distribution and marketing. So by no means a box office hit, but probably because of Tom Hardy's presence and because of this wonderful voice cast, it was at least not a flop, at least, it, at least it broke even and maybe even scraped a profit. I suspect a lot of people would have thought it was a thriller, given Tom Hardy's back catalogue and given some of the images on the poster and the, and the trailer. It is quite a fast-paced film, and at 85 minutes, there's no fat on it. 
but it's not a thriller. It's a drama which is quite thrilling because the human emotions at stake are so high. And that to me is very thrilling because basically Locke starts the film with the beautiful wife, with the big house, with the fantastic job. And by the end of it, he's got none of those things. But he's still got his dignity because he's lived life according to his own rules and he's taken responsibility for his own actions. And he remains sympathetic throughout, really, but also by the end, I believe the best films and the best novels always portray a journey. That's important for narrative. And when your entire film set in a car, it's pretty easy to portray a journey. But at the end, he's achieved redemption. He's a father again, and he will have a relationship with his son or daughter. He will somehow forge or reforge a new relationship with his family, uh, although he'll probably go through a very painful divorce. But at the end, you know, we've been rooting for him, and you feel like he succeeded on his own terms. And that's why I'm making Locke my highbrow choice for this week. Give it a go. I think you might be pleasantly surprised. Yes, indeed. Who knew concrete could be so exciting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, it's, don't forget, kids, if you take one thing away from this movie, if you're doing one of the biggest pours in Europe and it says C6 on the instructions, then you use C6, you don't use C5, or it could all go horribly wrong. Yeah. Just so you know. But to be fair, I mean, I was one of those people who thought it was a thriller um, because, you know, the, again, Tom Hardy, his back catalogue, the back of one of the reviews that's it's a nail biting. It's not nail biting. It is tense, though. But mm-hmm. it's more like you said, it's more human interest drama. And there are, you do hope that he will achieve what he wants to achieve. But to say it's nail biting is, is to completely missell it. It is enjoyable, though, and it does keep you um, entertained. The only thing that I wish there had been more of were moments like when he's talking about the site plan mm-hmm. and the person at the other end says, I don't have it, and he turns around and it's in the car with him. And, you know, you think, oh, no, does that mean he has to drive back again? A few more moments like that, I think, would have kept it going. Parts of it, I just thought, how oh, is this going to last 90 minutes? I don't see how they, if they can stretch the plot out. But like I said in um, our episode on After Hours, I do like nocturnal movies, and there was something almost hypnotic about this swish of the cars going past and the lights and the windscreen and everything so it was a lovely movie to watch um you mentioned the cinematography i would point out the audio as well especially um i i didn't watch it on dvd but a lot of the dvd reviews do highlight the 5.1 mix where it feels like you're in the car with lock as the film goes on with the kind of the other cars going by and just the whole ambience so um, i think a lot of work was put into that as well but I did enjoy it. It was one, again, that I'd been meaning to watch for ages, and I watched it and I enjoyed it. I just think it was missold slightly in its promotion. That's my only concern. Yeah, yeah. And I remember being at a, a New Year's Eve party once and, and striking up a conversation with a social worker. And I said, oh, I've just watched this great film called Lark. And she's like, oh, I didn't see the point of that. I kept waiting for like a, a terrorist to come out the boot or something. It, it really was missold. But I, I see your point about about the sound of it is wonderful. And yeah. uh, because I think it was a stroke of genius to actually film it on the highway. Yeah. In fact, uh, I was watching a making of documentary on YouTube where it's subtitled Hamlet on the Highway because they could have filmed it in the studio and um, they just put blue screen behind him or something. And maybe they didn't have the budget for that, but maybe that's just serendipitous because 
Hardy would have been in the car and he wouldn't have had the constant reassuring presence of a, of a director. If you get along with the director to say, okay, no, do it that way, he'd be getting these phone calls from these actors. And I don't know how much contact he had with the actors beforehand or whether he knew them professionally or socially, but it is tense, you know, just having that other person on the end of the line and just driving along the motorway the, the way they did. I thought that was very good. Dan, before we came on, you mentioned to me a, a degree of scepticism about, about Tom Hardy's accent. Now that you've explained why he went with the Welsh accent, it makes a bit more sense, but it's not the most convincing Welsh accent I've ever heard. And I just thought he's got a, his natural accent is fine. Why not just use that? But then, you know, your explanation, it doesn't convince me as to why he should do it, but I could see his, the methodology behind it. Uh, that's the only downside for me, is that Tom Hardy's got a perfectly good, natural, soft-speaking voice. Now I understand what his was going through his head when he made that decision. It's not a decision I agree with, but um, now at least I understand now why he did it. But watching it at the time, I just thought this is incredibly distracting. This terrible Welsh accent that doesn't need to be here. I mean, I thought his accent was pretty good, and I've been a bit sceptical of some of Tom Hardy's other voice performances. I thought as Bane, he was somewhere between awful and hyster hysterical because he sounded like Roger Moore to me in Bane. Uh, is as Bane in Batman, whichever Batman film that was, I forget. Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight Rises, thank you very much. I believe that one had to be extensively redubbed after previews. The audience says they couldn't understand it. And I haven't seen Capone, but I saw the trailers and the previews and I was just like, he sounds a bit like the Penguin in that <laughs> out of Batman Returns. So he's been... To my mind, a bit too experimental with accents in the past. Now, even though I had a Welsh father, I'm not the expert on Welsh dialects. I don't know if there's much difference between, say, a Cardiff accent and a Swansea accent, or a Mould accent and an Anglesey accent. To me, they sound kind of similar, all of them. But also the fact that he's been living in Birmingham, and if he's been living there maybe all of his life, and you get the impression because he's ambitious and talented, he wouldn't want to stay in a small Welsh village. He'd move to wherever the best work is. That his accent might have softened over time. Did you like Andrew Scott's Irish accent? Well, Andrew Scott is Irish, so yes. Oh, um, right. I didn't know that. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, he is. He is Irish. Um, I liked everybody. But I did like Andrew Scott, the way he was kind of hysterical. And then, you know, he's locked saying to him, have you been drinking? No, I haven't. And then it turns out he's had not one, but then two cans of cider. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, in that case, Andrew Scott does a very good English accent in Spectre and, and all them. I always presumed yeah. he was English. Let me just check, actually. Let me just check while we're here. Okay. Well, I think he is Irish because he plays, well, he plays Moriarty in Sherlock with an Irish accent, so I assumed he was ah, an Irish accent. Yeah, right, let me check okay. for you. He was born in Dublin. Ah, okay. Right, okay. Well, yeah, very good. Uh, in that case, he's really mustered uh, other accents. I, I, I was watching it thinking, oh, he's really nailed this Irish accent. He's, he's doing really well. Uh, yeah, you know, the rest of the voice cast are pretty good. Obviously, Olivia Coleman has gone on to amazing things. She won the Oscar for The Favourite, and she was Queen Elizabeth in The Crown, and um, Ruth Wilson has done some amazing things. Aside from the file about the the, um, the, the site folder being in the car, I mean, there were, I, I particularly like where he has to call the police station, and the policeman says, you've probably been in those bureaucratic situations where you, have, you, you go to one person, and they say, can't fix it for you, you have to go to someone else and then bring me back this thing. So he calls the policeman, the policeman says, oh, you'll have to call the counsellor. 
Unfortunately, the councillor's number is in his coat at home and his wife isn't talking to him. And when he does get the number, the guy's in an Indian restaurant and he's like, what are you doing? This is, you know, I'm having a night out. I don't want to be dealing with this. Fortunately, his reputation saves him because it seems Locke is the best in the business at at Concrete. (laughs) Yes, I can see where your social worker friend was coming from. I thought he'll be belting around the motorway to save the wife and kids and he'll get stopped by the police or something and then he'll have to explain that he's on a mission and all the while the phone is ringing and if he doesn't answer the phone they're all going to get killed that was the impression i got but i didn't feel shortchanged once i realized no i've been missold this film but actually this film is enjoyable and it is engrossing then i did enjoy it so i would share your recommendation on it oh cool cool Uh, i'm I'm glad you liked it and Again, I'd, I'd recommend the making of featurettes, which are all on YouTube, uh, if you want to track them down, listeners. Um, Tom Hardy said he was attracted to it because of the theatricality of the role. You know, it's good for your ego to think, oh, yeah, I could carry a movie myself, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't know until um, after I watched this and started researching the film that Tom Hardy's father, Chips Hardy, is a playwright. So maybe that's one reason that he was attracted to the theatricality of it, because it uh, runs in the family. No, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. You said the, the making of was called Hamlet on the Highway. Yeah. Is this Tom Hardy's Hamlet? Good question. Okay. It's definitely my favourite Tom Hardy film. He's done a lot of action films, which are, of course, most of them are really good. I'm not so much a big fan into Marvel and DC films and things like that. His film Bronson is quite good. Have you seen that, where he plays Charles Bronson? Yes. I think it's a good film. I mean, I think the actual prisoner, Charles Bronson, is an absolutely despicable person. So I was a little bit morally conflicted about watching it. But his performance is is amazing. But by nose, I would say Locke is better. So I'd say this is Tom Hardy's Hamlet. He's 45 now, I believe. So he's still got time for his Leah, dear boy. You know, he's about 15 years off his Leah because they say 60 is the perfect age to do Leah. I know I bring James Bond up all the time, but hey, I'm a big Bond fan, so obviously his name has been floated alongside every other actor in the you know Western Hemisphere with regards to James Bond. I don't know. I'd say from the action films he's done, and I haven't seen Venom and This Means War and some, some of the other ones. I've seen you know, the Batman one and maybe a couple of others. From the action films he's done, I think he looks a bit too much of a beefcake to be Bond. And I already thought that Daniel Craig was taking it in the kind of beefcake direction. Personally, I'd prefer someone a bit more suave and a bit more, you know, a gentleman and and more of a romantic in the role. You want another Roger Moore, don't you? Yeah, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know, I don't know who could fill those shoes, but I, I think Tom's biggest part, if he even wants the job, is that he's probably too big a star now. And they usually go with someone who hasn't quite hit the stratosphere yet, but a rising star is who they usually go for. Plus, at 45, and if they want someone for a long run, they might be thinking, hmm, better to go with someone in the 30s if we want them for a good 10, 15 years. Oh, Steve, why don't you just audition and be done with it? Yeah, yeah, I think I have to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, why not? You could be Bond. Let's hear your finest. Uh, My name's Bond, James Bond. Go on. My name is Bond, James Bond. Oh, fabulous. There you go. (laughs) I, I think I'd be a bigger shock choice than George Lazenby. I mean, at least he'd done some, uh, I think, chocolate commercials. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I suppose I could point to my time at the Chester Gateway Youth Theatre. <laughs> yes, when when you played Hamlet. Yeah, the the rider of the North, dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Not quite, yes, indeed. Um, shall I move on to mine? Please do. Okay, <laughs> okay. From Bond to Buried. My choice is the 2010 film by Rodrigo Cortez called Buried, which stars Ryan Reynolds. And just like Locke, it's pretty much carried by Reynolds. He's the only character you see everybody else he communicates with on his mobile phone. So it's set in 2006, after the kind of rather lively opening score that starts in darkness with just somebody breathing and then a cigarette lighter flicks on. And you find Reynolds plays a civilian worker called Paul Conroy, who wakes up in a wooden coffin in Iraq. And he's only got with him a Zippo lighter, which I have to say has, I don't know how much oil the Zippo lighter has in it, but as you watch the movie, you think, good grief, that Zippo lighter can go for ages, a pen and a phone. And of course, he doesn't know how he got there, and we don't know how he got there and why he's there. But through a series of phone calls, he gradually pieces together what has happened to him. He's a civilian contractor. He was escorting some equipment or oil, I think it was, and they were attacked by Iraqi insurgents. They were ambushed, and he passed out after being hit by a rock. And that's how he's ended up in this coffin. So once he wakes up in the coffin, he starts making some phone calls on the mobile using numbers that he knows. The phone is, uh, when it starts off, that the language is Arabic, so he's obviously struggling with what's on the phone. So he starts calling like the FBI office in Chicago and his employer, and then suddenly he gets a phone call from his kidnapper, whose name is Jabir, demanding that he pays a ransom of $5 million or he'll be left to die. He's given a script to read. He's asked to make a video. Now, at the same time, he's gone in contact with the State Department, who's put him in touch with a guy called Dan Brenner, who's the head of the hostage working group, who tells him not to make the video and to conserve the, the film's life. And Brenner tells Paul that they previously saved a man named Mark White, who was in a similar condition, and that he should don't give up hope. So when Paul is losing it, Brenner is always the voice of reason, always calming him down and always reassuring him that things will be fine. However, Jabir ups the ante by sending Paul a video of a colleague of his, Pamela, with a gag with a gun to her head and saying that if he doesn't make the video, the typical hostage video, um, saying who he is and why he's in the country and saying that he's going to be killed unless his government helps him out, that kind of thing, then they will kill Pamela. But as he says, the, the government will pay $5 million, so the demand is dropped to $1 million. But even when he makes the video, then his colleague is shot anyway. Now, as the film progresses, what becomes a man buried in a coffin, running out of air and patience, soon becomes a political pawn in a bigger game. For example, he's a civilian working in Iraq. The Iraqi insurgents see him as an American and therefore a legitimate target, even though he says he's not a military person. He's merely a contractor doing a job. The State Department won't negotiate with terrorists. There's one really chilling scene where he phones his employer. The firm's called CRT. He speaks to the head of CRT called Alan Davenport. He turns on a voice recorder and then asks him counsel questions like, do you remember the contract that you signed? And then his company insinuates and we're never sure if this is true or not that he had inappropriate relations with his colleague Pamela which he denies and there's no proof either way as to whether it did or didn't whether the company did find this or they're simply using this as an excuse to sack him so basically they retroactively sack him over the phone so what they're saying is we terminated your employment before you were kidnapped therefore you're not our responsibility and your family will not be entitled to any compensation from us and it's the way in which it's delivered in such a measured tone by Alan Davenport over the phone. First of all, you think he's trying to help or reassure Paul, and then eventually you just realize he's dropping him like a stone. 
so it's like you're not our problem anymore goodbye and that for me is one of the most chilling moments in the movie but I'm sure the fact that this is set in 2006, even though it was filmed in 2010, I'm sure there's a lot of true life events influenced this, because I imagine there were quite a few hostages were just dropped, you know, as inconveniences and left to die in situations such as this. Brenner, in the meantime, constantly reassures him that they are coming to save him. A snake invades the coffin at one point, and then there's bombings nearby, and the coffin starts filling up with sand, and time is obviously running out. So Paul phones his mum in the nursing home, and it's another heartbreaking conversation because his mum is suffering from dementia, and she keeps saying about how her and her husband, Paul's dad, were playing some card game the other week, even though the impression is that Paul's dad passed away long ago, and she keeps repeating herself. And then he finally gets through to his wife and whatever he's done, she wants to forgive him and just for him to come back. The one that did make me laugh, though, was the conversation with Marianne, isn't that right? Isn't that the one that he has the argument with? I think that's his sister-in-law, I think. She has the argument with her and <laughs> he's abusive to her and then hangs up and then calms down and phones her back and then says an expletive at the end of the conversation. Anyway, that I thought was kind of a, a moment of light humour. I have to say, I was never a big Ryan Reynolds fan until I saw this film. I'd seen him in Blade Trinity. And I thought, well, nobody's great in that. But then when you read into the background of the making of and the filming of Blade Trinity, it was an unhappy experience for a lot of people. And it certainly was an unhappy experience for the viewer. But this was certainly one that made me think, wow, Ryan Reynolds can carry a movie. This is, you know, he's actually quite good, which was a nice surprise. I mean, for I started watching this thinking, I'm going to hopefully I'll enjoy this despite Ryan Reynolds being in it. And actually by the end of it, I thought hey, he's done a great job here, his young Reynolds. So I was very impressed. And of course, the, the voice cast as well, the rest of them were very good. Samantha Mathis is his wife, Linda. Stephen Toblowski, which may not be a name you'll recognise, but you will recognise his face if you look him up on IMDb. He played Sammy Jenkins in Memento, the guy that Leonard is um, investigating to see whether his amnesia was inflicted or whatever. He plays Alan Davenport really chillingly. I'm not going to tell you the ending, folks, because I think you should see it. But it, 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 this one is nail-biting. You do get an ending, and when you look back, it all does make sense. And it was also filmed for on a £2 million budget, but it made £21.3 at the box office. So it did slightly better than Locke, but it's as good a movie as Locke. I'm not going to say it's better, because I think they're different, but it is as good a movie, and I do enjoy it. And I hadn't seen it in ages before... I thought of doing it for this podcast and there were certain bits of it I'd forgotten. So it was fun to watch it again. What did you make of it, Steve? Well, I enjoyed it very much and I went in and I think all of these kind of one-man films like Locke and whatnot make you think, oh, how are they going to stretch this out or they'll, they'll never make it work? I went in and the first 10 minutes, I'm like, you know, the jury's out. Am I going to be able to tolerate this? But I mean, I felt it, it held together very well. I don't know what the exact running time was, but it wasn't two hours. It wasn't two and a half hours. They kept it nice and condensed. And Ryan Reynolds' performance was extremely good. I'm just curious, how constricted was the actual space he was in as an actor? There was a making of on the DVD. At the, the final scenes, they were actually filling up the coffin with sand. Oh. It's certainly in the making of. It's a false wall. So he is in a coffin, but they've taken away one of the walls where they're shooting in, but he is basically in a small box. It says it was shot in Barcelona over 16 days. Lead actor Ryan Reynolds stated that he suffered from claustrophobia while filming, much like the character he plays. The coffin he was in was gradually filled with sand as filming went on. 
such that he was actually buried while shooting the film's climactic moments. Ryan described the last day of shooting as unlike anything I've experienced in my life, and I never, ever want to experience that again. The crew had a team of paramedics on standby. But certainly in the making of, which I'm not sure if it's on YouTube or not, it shows them filming it, and he is in the coffin, and all they've done is take one of the sides out so they can shoot into it. I noticed how it, made, it turned it into kind of almost a three-act movie, the two times when the camera shows him lying on his back and it pulls up and up and up to show just how deeply buried he is. And I think that's the only time they took the ceiling out. Any other time, the filming space is as cramped as it looks on the screen. Oh, that is extraordinary. Mm. So he probably had that snake in that filming space with him then, didn't he? Yes, that's he did. The, I wouldn't have been too happy with that. I'm, I'm not one of these uh, people who's fond of snakes. Not me neither. Uh, yeah, either as a pet or, or anything like that. Yeah, I, I thought it was as good, really good. And again, without giving the end away, was was veering towards tragedy. And you know, made in 2010, set in 2006, which I seem to remember as being one of the worst years in terms of news coming out of Iraq, insurgent attacks and and coalition casualties and all manner of atrocities taking place. And, and I think you're right, Stephen Tabalowski's appearance or the appearance of his voice is the most chilling moment the fact that he doesn't get angry because he knows what he's doing is completely unjustified morally but but he talks almost like a computer and he bullies him into saying yes yes you know into making these omissions even though we're not sure as to what actually happened with pamela uh, and like you i'm a bit of a stephen tabalowski fan uh, i i think the first film i ever saw him in was um, bird on a wire with mel gibson in which he's the villain. He seems like he's pretty good at playing villains with a kind of bureaucratic bent. But I'm reading here, he co-wrote a film with David Byrne of, of Talking Heads fame called True Stories, which I'm going to have to check out because I like Tabalowski and I quite like Talking Heads and um, I will check that out. I've never seen it, so do let me know what you think of it. It's certainly one I've always meant to watch. Obviously, I love the Talking Heads concept film, Stop Making Sense, which I think is the best concept film. I'm definitely interested to see what this is going to be like. Well, Steve, let me ask you this. If you're a big Talking Heads fan, do you have the David Byrne oversized jacket as modelled in said concert movie? <laughs> no, I don't. But give me a few more years and I might need it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fast approaching that age where there's a bit of middle age spread going on. Yeah. <laughs> So can you actually buy jackets? Are there actually hardcore fans who, who do actually buy fat suits like that? Oh, I'm sure you can probably, if you go into some Talking Heads site, you could probably find somebody who makes them or would make one for you. I'm just looking back at Buried here. Filmmaker John Waters named Buried as one of the best 10 films of 2010, stating the most excruciatingly painful date movie imaginable comes complete with a very smart, feel-bad ending. See it with someone you hate. Yes. I didn't realise he'd go rope true stories. That's quite interesting. So do let me know what you make of it. Yeah, so. we'll do. Well, the director of Buried, it seems like he struggled to recreate the same success, hasn't he? He'd done the contestant. Oh, that's an extra on the Buried DVD that I have, which I thought it's not good. Great, it's not bad. Bad Lights, which I have seen, which I thought was a wasted opportunity. That's the one about a physicist and psychology professor who specialised in debunking supernatural phenomena, starring Robert De Niro, Sigourney Weaver, Cillian Murphy and Elizabeth Olsen. And that's one I thought read really well, but just fell flat on the screen. He reunited with his buried screenwriter, Chris Sparling, for his 2018 movie, Down a Dark Hole, based on the novel of the same name by Lois Duncan and produced by Twilight writer Stephanie Meyer. The most recent thing he's done is 2021's Love Gets a Room. Now, none of these I've heard of. Mm. apart from red lights 
Dino Dark Hall looks interesting. Oh dear, it didn't do too well, though it hasn't got good reviews. Yes, it looks like he's had this brilliant hit and then has struggled ever since, which is a shame. Maybe the problem is is that um, Buried is such a great premise and the fact that he pulled it off, it's hard to repeat. It's hard to find another plot with such an ingenious premise. I mean, maybe, maybe you need to go down other kind of narrative routes and maybe you build up a fan base who love that film Buried and just want you to repeat it. And, it, and obviously the film is kind of unrepeatable, just as Locke is extremely unique. You know, we mentioned Locke being a highlight of Tom Hardy's career as an actor, maybe not commercially. And Ryan Reynolds is similar in that he's done a lot of action films and superhero films. Can you think of any other Ryan Reynolds films which are, are really dramatically powerful as this one? Do you mean is this his Hamlet, Steve? I think this is it's Hamlet in a box, yeah. It's yes, I think well, I think this may well let's have a quick look at his film. Actually, if he'd had a skull in the box in the in the coffin and, and he could he could have done a last poor Yorick I knew him well, that would have been quite appropriate, really. Yes. I mean, he did a lot of X-Men, and of course, he's Deadpool is the his superhero choice, and he's quite good in that. But a lot of what he does is kind of comedy and more lighthearted stuff. So certainly for me, it redeemed him in my eyes. In the same way, for example, I have very little time for Owen Wilson, but you see him in Behind Enemy Lines, and he can actually act in that. Oh. And I just think sometimes more comedic actors give them a serious script and ask them to do serious sometimes they can pull it out of the bag and on this occasion ryan reynolds does that so for me looking at his filmography he's done some good stuff but for me i would if i was to say a career highlight it would, would be buried definitely whether he would agree i don't know well, well actors always say my best role is my next role you know right. they, they i mean i think any artist be a painter musician novelist or whatever they don't want to think their best roles are behind them you know they want to say it's in front of them but just on that owen wilson point he Owen Wilson is very good, not dramatically, but it's very funny in um, Lost in London. Woody Harrelson's film, which is his only his directorial debut, uh, and I think to date the only film he's directed in, in which he has this kind of mad night in London, he finishes a play, he goes on the town and just this series of bizarre events befall him. It's very like After Hours, actually, but it was broadcast live and... In terms of um, just the sheer courage that must have gone into the production for everyone involved, because they go to like four or five different um, places in London, you know, they're at the theatre, then they're at the bar, and then he gets thrown in the cells, and then he's running down the streets, he's in a taxi, and he sees Owen Wilson, because Woody Harrelson is playing himself, <laughs> and Owen Wilson is playing himself, and they have this kind of... They send up their friendship uh, in it. <laughs> this like saying, can can two lovies ever really be friends? You know, because <laughs> they're, they're, they're too competitive. And Owen Wilson is very good in that. And it must have been nerve wracking for him as much as anybody else to think one small mistake. I didn't see it broadcast live, unfortunately, but I, I did see it afterwards. And I don't think the cut had been um, tampered with in any way. I think it was just it's 140 minutes. It's well worth checking out. It's some of it's very funny. There are other bits that don't quite work quite so well comedically but you, you'll you'll walk away with nothing but respect for the experiment that they pulled off well that's sometimes it isn't it sometimes the experiment is more uh, successful than the end product but you've got to admire the experiment so I'll, that's that's another one for me to watch uh, again that was one i think was advertised as being on in fact and they were going to show the live broadcast and i missed it but it is one again that i would i would like to see yeah. so well i will have a look at that well, I think the downside was that the tickets were kind of extortionate. Oh, yes. Um, yes, they were. Yeah. I think they were about 20 quid or something, whatever they charge for a live event. 20 quid is actually not that expensive. This is why no one goes to cinema anymore. 
because why would you spend 14 quid for a ticket these days or whatever it is when you can stream it live but 20 quid at 2017 prices it was it was expensive another good experimental film is is dogville which is all done on stage is set in this very small village in in the, in the american south rather than having built the set it's done on stage and the houses are just chalked in so the characters are in their house but it's just chalk and they stay in there and they'll, they'll be in the shop it's three hours but it's very good it, it it's experimental and it works and again with these experimental films, it seems like you need an astonishing cast to pull it off. And this has got it. It's got Nicole Kidman and Laura Bacall and James Caan and Paul Bettany. It doesn't descend into AFB then? AFB, yeah. Am I allowed to say what AFB is on this podcast? I'll bleep it. Go on, say it and I'll okay. bleep it. Well, when I when I did amateur theatre, AFB was arty farty b****. <laughs> because... About us, our sessions were split. It was it was weekly sessions, and they'd be split between rehearsing a play, and when the play went into production, you'd be there every night, and then kind of what were loosely called skill sessions. But we'd come in, and and someone would whisper to me, "Sorry, Steve, it's AFB tonight." Yes, you'd be a tree, or you'd use your arms to be the branches which are blowing in the wind, or something. The justification for it was kind of clever, actually, because the director always used to say that uh, the theatre is as disciplined as the army. <laughs> but obviously the makeup is slightly different, less less of a nighttime look in, in the theatre. And, and I think, though, just as in the army, you're being trained and you're having some sh- sergeant yell at you that you're a, you're a share of sh- and all this, and you're being made to do 50 push-ups at 5am and and all manner of degrading tasks they're kind of robbing you of, of, of whatever your sense of pride or your sense of consciousness because the lovers were really quite shy we're not the type to start dancing in the park or anything like that so they're robbing you of all the sense of consciousness that says no i'm not going to do that so you end up doing these silly things and that's why you you walk around pretending to be a, a cat or something you know, and, you're, and you're there purring and and all sorts of stuff so um yeah, so this goes out to anyone who's currently in, in, in theatre or amateur theatre. Uh, keep it up, and I'm sorry about the AFB, but, you know, you get through the AFB and then you get to do a terrific play. So it, it's it's all, there's a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. The song said plays and cats, then you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suspect it would be, actually, because uh, I think musical theatres, they, they figured out that that was where the money is. Oh. And um, obviously, most theatres lose money. And we certainly lost money at the Gateway, which is now closed. Unless you're a Western theatre, your subsidy is usually peanuts from the state. And and you, when they put plays on at a loss. And if you could get by on an acceptable loss, then you do okay. But, you know, musicals would just bring them in. That's why at Radra, I believe now, they put a lot of effort effort into teaching you how to sing. And dance as a sing, because you've got to put on a show. <laughs> yeah. And as we were speaking about accents earlier, I believe one of the first accents you learn at rather these days would be an American accent. Oh. <laughs> because all the American, the Hollywood producers visit because, you know, they they like British actors or they think they're cheap or whatever. And they think, oh, you'd be a good villain. <laughs> you know, be, because uh, the, the the Brits usually make good villains. Uh, Alan Rickman probably started that trend, and uh, but now they teach an American accent, and if you want, it, if you want to get the really high paid jobs, so yes, those days. 
Calcium days, dear boy. Right. <laughs> well, th thank you for that little trip down memory lane. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I, I, I did I, I did rather take it away from the films we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. If you've just joined us, dear listener, we were talking about the films Locked and Buried, but um, we seem to have drifted into Steve's Chester Youth Theatre memoirs, but it's all good fun, dear boy. Well, yeah, I seem to be one of these people, no matter what the subject is, I can somehow bring it back to myself and my own experiences. <laughs> so that, I mean, maybe that's the sign of a typical lover. You know? <laughs> yeah. Why, Steve, have you ever been um, buried uh, in a coffin six feet under? Or have you ever been in a car making phone calls? Um, no, no. And I, and I don't know much about concrete. <laughs> right. yeah. That was a great moment in the film, Locke, that I forgot to mention when his wife confirms that she's leaving him and says the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to clean the house out of everything of, of your of your smell and everything you've left behind when she mentions that he'd come in with his boots on and his boots would have chipped concrete on them and that chip would stay on the kitchen floor or something and the house would be full of dust and dust, the dust of concrete so it seemed like um, that was another you know concrete metaphor hmm. that they worked into the film quite well. Shall we leave it there? I managed to I managed to bring it back to the film. <laughs> Less about myself. <laughs> you have. Uh, uh, well done, dear boy. Yes, absolutely. Let's yeah. big finish. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed our highbrow and lowbrow recommendations for this week. And who knew that running a construction site or talking about concrete could be so riveting or a film set entirely underground in a coffin could be so riveting. But do check out our recommendations. Lock and Buried. They're two wonderful films with wonderful acting by actors who don't always get the opportunity to play characters so deep, uh, quite literally, in Ryan Reynolds' case. Anyway, we've had a terrific time talking about these films with you, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.